So now let's move on to our study. You guys have six pages to look at. Um, I hope you're ready for this seminary class. This book is very good, but it also has a lot of content. And so you do kind of have to, have to do a little work to keep up with it. Um, you see there, I've got us a map. You may have already seen a map, uh, but I think it's helpful to refer back to. And do not worry. Uh, the color cost of this print was not paid for by the church, and your tithes did not go towards this. So don't worry. <laughs> I know somebody. I know a guy. Um, so we're at the prophets of the seventh century. The prophets of the seventh century. We're going to talk about them today. And uh, in the seventh century, prophetic activity was limited to the southern kingdom of Judah. So what this map helps us do is understand a little bit what's going on. Because if you're like me, you can get confused. Okay, you got northern kingdom, southern kingdom, you got Judah, you got Israel, one goes to Syria, one goes to Babylon, who's who? Who goes where? It's hard to keep track. We see there in your map that Israel is in purple, and they are the northern kingdom, and they are taken to Assyria, okay? Now, the way I remember it is that Israel, I, comes before Judah, J, I before J, and also Assyria, A, comes before B, Assyria and Babylon. You may have heard that already, but that helps me keep it straight in my mind that alphabetically, Israel goes to Assyria first, and then the southern kingdom, Judah, goes to Babylon. Uh, that's how you can keep it straight in your mind. So the ten tribes of Israel in the north are taken into exile at this time. Uh, they've, they've been taken away into Assyria. And most likely, um, they were intermarried with foreigners, uh, kind of scattered throughout the nations um, over hist throughout history. Some would even say that a lot of them en ended up in uh, England and some of the, the Europe area up there. Uh, that's debatable. Um, most say that there's just so little known about the ten tribes and, and what happened to them. It's very difficult to actually trace and track what exactly happened. But knowing that and knowing that the God had promises for his people and he promised to bring them back to the land, how are those prophecies about Israel and Judah being reunited possible in the light of the fact that Historically, those 10 tribes are kind of almost historically just what happened to them, poof, gone. Um, how are the prophecies about Israel and Judah being reunited possible then? And that's our discussion question. So any thoughts? How is that possible? I see somebody smiling. Yeah, so the idea of a remnant, that one day that God will uh, have a people from all nations and all tribes. You're getting that kind of that, that idea that flows through Scripture. Okay, so is, yeah, is this a actual land promise? Is this actually going to see full fulfillment here now? Did God promise that? Help us out.
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And think, you know, O. Palmer Robertson gets it. Exegetically, that's the direction that Scripture just keeps going, is that there's a greater, fuller fulfillment here that's going to take place. And that it is, I mean, that's a really good point, that the ten tribes have almost, you know, filled the earth and that they're part of probably every, every nation to some degree, every people. Thought, yeah. Yeah, and I think that there's debate about this, obviously. Um, I think the direction usually um, O. Palmer Robertson is going to go in, the, in the, some of this study that we're doing is that embedded within all the Old Testament prophecy is this, you know, partial fulfillment. that You see it partially fulfilled at that time. God, you know, returning his people to a land, but also, like, there's this fullness that God intended um, that just is not seen yet then in the Old Testament by his people. So there's a, an already not yet component to it um, that these prophecies have. That he's speaking to a people at that time and also pointing to something better. Um, so Palmer Robertson, if you flip your page, um, he kind of talks about how the prophecies anticipate the reality of the new covenant, which we've been talking about. And the expectation of the prophets finds their fulfillment through salvation for both Jews and Gentiles. Um, Paul sees it as a fulfillment of Hosea's prophecy. He, he talks about it in Romans 9, quoting Hosea, uh, how he talked about those who are not my people, I will call my people. So those that were Gentiles, those who are not his people, will be his people one day. And in the opposite is true, is that, you know, those Jews who are not uh, by faith part of the covenant, then they are not his people. It is constantly drawn back to that idea of and we'll see it as we come to Habakkuk that the, justify, the righteous are justified by faith. Um, and we keep coming back to that. And uh, the question that always you know, pops up, I remember talking about it in Bible college, what makes a Jew a Jew? And you'd have arguments on a dorm floor. Everybody's got their opinion. What makes a Jew a Jew? You could go on and on about it. Um, I mean, Paul is pretty clear in Romans 2. He says, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So a Jew is a Jew inwardly, not necessarily outwardly. That's what makes a true Jew a Jew. So 
Robertson's quote there uh, is that all who are gathered into Christ are identified as the Israel of God, the true Israel of God, whatever might be their ethnic background. So God's always been, you know, creating a people for himself, and that people is a people by faith, um, not a people who are simply circumcised and outwardly conformed to uh, the law, but those who actually have hearts that have been changed and are trusting by faith in the God of the covenant. All those gathered into Christ are identified as Israel of God. That's really good news for us, isn't it? That we are considered God's people if we are by faith in Christ. So now we, uh, with that background, we come to the prophets of the 7th century. We're going to look at Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, and Jeremiah. Um, and there's a lot of content here, so we're going to try to try to breeze through this as quickly as possible. Um, so Nahum, his big theme is that the capital of Assyria is going to fall, Nineveh. That great city, Nineveh, is going to fall. That's his theme. And extra biblical evidence tells us it fell in about 612 B.C. And Nahum references the fall of the Egyptian capital of Noamon in 664 B.C. So with those periods, historically, you can narrow it down that that brackets the dates for his writing. It was probably some, it was before 612 B.C. that Nahum was prophesying. Um, and between 612 and 664. The popular verse that you probably remember, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him that brings good news or brings good tidings that publishes peace. Do you remember hearing that verse sometimes used? Uh, That's a very popular verse. It's used uh, in several places in scripture. Now you would think, and it, you know, that's a very hopeful verse. It's used in the New Testament, the declaration of the gospel. But the way Nahum uses it is a little bit different. For him, it refers to those who are declaring the destruction of the wicked king of Assyria and his empire. So Assyria had taken uh, the northern kingdom, and the good news that he is talking about that should be the good tidings tidings that come from uh, the feet of those on the mountaintops is actually that the, the destruction of the evil king of Assyria is going to happen. That would be the good news to him. Now Isaiah, in Isaiah 52, he uses those exact words. Isaiah 52, he uses the exact words. He talks about how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him that brings good tidings. And he's actually referring to the peace and salvation of God coming. The peace and salvation of God coming. So you've got the same words being used by Nahum and Isaiah, but a little bit differently what their good news is. For Nahum, it's the destruction of God's enemies that's the good news. And for Isaiah, it's the salvation of God's people. That's the good news. So why, and this can be a discussion question for us, why are both of those necessary? You've got the same words saying the same thing. The good news is, on one hand, it's destruction. On one hand, it's salvation. Why are those both necessary in that good news? Right, yet God must be just, and he must punish sin. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's really good to point back again to Genesis and, and the promise that's coming because it starts all the way back at the beginning. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, justice justice must be served, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because we should be. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's good to remember that perspective. Yeah. Making them sorry. What? Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. One more. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yep. Good. So we see here uh, that the echo of the new covenant is in the Old Testament. Nahum and Isaiah are, are, are echoing this, this hope. And Romans 10.15, we see it picked up by Paul. He quotes and he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. How wonderful is that? And he's talking about the good news of Christ, the Messiah coming, right? And the prophecies of Isaiah and Nahum together anticipate that good news for Jew and Gentile. They're anticipating what's to come. And at the cross, obviously, all God's enemies are defeated and all his people are redeemed. So the powers of sin and Satan and hell, nothing um, can stand against this salvation that is coming and good news is proclaimed. Um, how beautiful that is. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach that good news, right? Echoing the Old Testament. So we uh, move on from Nahum to Habakkuk. And Habakkuk uh, was the, a complaining prophet. He starts off complaining to the Lord. But by the end of the book, uh, he is trusting the Lord. He's, he has turned to trust. So you see there, the very first chapter, he says... Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? How long shall I cry and you will not hear? And then, uh, a popular verse you may have heard before, by the end of the chapter, it's a beautiful, a beautiful heart that, for the Christian to be able to say this, to say this in faith. 
He says in chapter 3, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. So we see there the, the prayer of Habakkuk, that he's like, if everything around me crumbles, if we have absolute destruction, there's no food, there's no fruit, there's no uh, animals in the stall, yet my greatest treasure is the Lord. Nothing can take that away from him, right? Nothing can take that away from us. And so he's a complaining prophet who by the, by the end of his dealing with the Lord, uh, we see that he is trusting. And it kind of it, it echoes uh, Job, right? And that idea of, of, of suffering and yet trusting, trusting the Lord. And how beautiful that is when, when God can change our hearts to be able to do that, to be able to go through suffering and yet have some sort of hope, to go through great trial and have hope. Um, so we see, we see Habakkuk doing that, and um, he complains, and he turns to faith, and he complains about, and I'm sorry about the typo there, the uncorrected sinfulness of God's people. And then God answers him, but he answers him in a way that he was not expecting. He gets more than he bargained for. You know, Habakkuk just wanted God to, like, these people are sinful, just deal with it here, just help them, you know, discipline them right here. And God's answer is a bit more than he wanted. Um, God's answer is that Judah and Jerusalem are going to be exiled like Israel uh, was, that they are going to be taken out of the land. Um, and it's going, to be, it's going to be violent. It's going to be awful. Um, so the question there is, will God allow an even more sinful nation to be the instrument of judgment on Judah? Habakkuk, you know, kind of wrestles with this. Like, are you going to let a people even more sinful than us be the ones who exercise judgment on, the, on us? Um, and I think that we've, we've talked about this before, maybe in a Sunday school setting, but your discussion question is, do you think it is just for a sinful nation to be an instrument of judgment on God's people and then to still be held liable for their actions against God's people? For a sinful nation to carry out God's judgment and yet they are still liable for their sin in doing that. Is that, is that, how is that just? God's ways are not our ways, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Another thought. I think there is good utility in trying to conceive of how it could be just. I could go through complicated arguments 
Yeah, good, good, good point. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, we see, we see a lot going on here. We see that there's a sense in which we do not know the mind of the Lord, and we're, we really shouldn't expect to understand all his ways. We are, we are not God. Um, who are we? To answer back to him um, and yet at the same time like I think we can affirm that God is not the author of sin right so what you know what man meant for evil God can mean for good and God stands outside of having uh, any there's no responsibility on God's part for sin it's never his responsibility um, but in a sense I think that you do see here what you know what man meant for evil God intends for good and and uh, the judgment of his people is meant to bring about redemption, right? And they're an instrument uh, in that. Um, so that's, uh, that's a question to think about and wrestle before the Lord with as we read Scripture. Um, next, God leaves Habakkuk with a powerful message of hope. Uh, the message is so important that it's actually chiseled on stone. I thought that was interesting. Just like the Ten Commandments, that this message is chiseled on stone. Um, and that message is, uh, you've heard it quoted, the righteous shall live by his faith, Habakkuk 2.4. And though God's righteous judgment must be carried out, a remnant will be saved by faith. So this people is going to be judged. And yet, Habakkuk promises there's hope for the righteous shall live by faith. Um, and Paul uses this same same verse he uses in Romans 1. He says, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith in Romans 1. Uh, talking about the gospel coming to Jew and Gentile, uh, that is by faith. Um, God has not cast off his people forever, uh, Romans 11. We uh, dealt with that in our series not long ago, that how, how are the Jews and how is salvation possible if um, God, it seems as if God has cast off his people that have rejected him. But that is not the case for the righteous will live, right? The righteous will live by faith, that there is a remnant that God is saving still. And that Paul is actually an example of that, right? Paul is an example of that remnant that will be saved and shall survive by faith. So once again, we see uh, another Old Testament prophet, Habakkuk, sometimes difficult to understand. But one thing we can get out of it is the, the gospel hope, the hope of the new covenant is always still, still there, flowing forward, moving forward. And uh, the New Testament, Paul refers back to it. Uh, next, we look at Zephaniah. Uh, Zephaniah is a 7th century prophet, and he's the only one who specifically dates his writing. He was during the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. He locates his ministry between 640 and 609, um, and it indicates that his message precedes the fall of Assyria's capital of Nineveh, so that his ministry, his message was actually before that. Um, it's interesting that Zephaniah was there under King Josiah, who was, if you remember, he was a good king. 
and they found the law of the Lord uh, during his reign, uh, the recovery of the law book in 622 B.C. And so this led to great reform for the nation. The King Josiah was a good king who found the law, and he said, we need to make some changes. We need to follow the law of the Lord and get back in line. Um, and so uh, Zephaniah, we can, you can see that his language uh, suggests that he was being shaped by the book of Deuteronomy, that they had the book of the law, Deuteronomy, and he would, he would be reading that and f- familiar with it as he was doing his ministry. So Zephaniah had a special role as a prophet during this period, and the Lord placed him there to help King Josiah in his reforms. Um, he was a help to him. His big message is that the day of the Lord is coming. Zephaniah's big message is that the day of the Lord is coming. This is distinctive um, to him, and he makes a connection between the day of the Lord and God's covenants. So we, we think of the day of, day of the Lord, right, and we think about Christ's coming. And so this echo is happening even in the Old Testament. And there's a connection for Zephaniah with the covenants of the Old Testament, Noah, Abraham, and Moses. This is kind of interesting to me, um, that in each case, the corresponding covenantal curse anticipates the judgment of the future. So uh, Zephaniah is talking about what is going to happen to the people, and he uses language similar to the cursings of covenants that were before him. So the covenant with Noah, we know that Noah, the, the earth was washed with the flood and all died. And using that language associated with Noah, God says that he will sweep away men, animals, birds, and fish from the earth in Zephaniah 1. That is uh, the judgment that's, that's coming that Zephaniah prophesies about, and it reflects the language from Noah and the judgment that happened in that covenant. So imagery is also associated with Abraham when he indicates that the Lord has prepared a sacrifice of victims that require judgment. You remember that Abraham uh, had the, the sacrificial covenant with the Lord. The Lord takes the pieces, he rips them apart, and the Lord walks through them. And the idea of, of a covenant is that you, if you break that covenant, that you will become as those dead animals if you do not keep the covenant. And so that, that language, that imagery is there as victims are prepared for sacrifice. Um, we also see the echoing the circumstances around the inauguration of the Mosaic Covenant. Remember when Moses goes up to receive the law, there's darkness and a thick cloud. The people are afraid. And so Zephaniah says that the coming judgment day will have thick darkness, thick cloud, and trumpet in battle. So it's interesting that in the judgments that Zephaniah is, is, is giving to the people that God is speaking through him echo the language from Noah and Abraham and Moses, um, that, that covenant judgment, that covenant language. Um, Zephaniah's message of judgment comes well before, or, well, or goes well beyond the deportation of Judah. So Judah is going to be deported. Judgment's coming right, right then for God's people, that they are immediately going to be taken out of their land, right? There's a, a judgment that's going to happen. But Zephaniah also, in his, in his language here, speaks of a more full, a greater judgment coming. He says in chapter 1, For on the day of the Lord's wrath, this great day that's coming, the whole world will be consumed, for he will make a sudden end of all who live on the earth. And so this is kind of a, a foretelling of what's to come, the judgment, the great judgment of the Lord that will come. So his, his judgment goes beyond the deportation of Judah, but it also 
uh, speaks of a greater return, a greater return, because there is a promise that the people will return to the land, right? That God will bring his people back. So Zephaniah's message of restoration also goes well beyond the return of a remnant. And he says, foreign peoples will be purified in Zephaniah 3. The Lord's worshipers will come from beyond Cush in Africa. He will gather those scattered from every land. So Zephaniah obviously here is echoing a, a much greater return than just this, this people that was alive at that moment. That from every land, from those beyond Cush, those scattered in every land, will be brought back a remnant. And we see that this side of Messiah's coming, how true that is. That there was much more within these prophecies than probably at that time the people understood. Uh, next we move on to Jeremiah. Um, there is so much. <laughs> there is so much that we could talk about uh, in Jeremiah. Um, some of it is going to have to just be um, left for another time. Travis is helping us understand on Sunday nights the book of Jeremiah. Uh, so that's a, that's a, a great help. Um, but Jeremiah is dated to the 13th year of King Josiah, or 627 B.C., and his ministry continued beyond the exile of the southern kingdom in 587 B.C. He declared the word of the Lord to a resistant people for over 40 years. Wow, poor Jeremiah. Who wants to have that job? To be called by the Lord and told, they're not going to listen to you. And for 40 years, you need to declare my word to them, and they're just going to hate you for it, and they're going to rebel and sin no matter what. For 40 years, that's your job, Jeremiah. Um, and what a strengthening must have been given him to do that difficult work by the Lord. So he declared that word to a resistant people for 40 years. And what uh, Palmer Robertson points out in Jeremiah is that there are some key words that pop up throughout the book and, and key pivotal moments that are um, God's words for uh, exile and restoration of his people. And it happens in a seven, I think it's seven different places. So these six key words are to uproot and to tear down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. So the idea there is uproot, tear, destroy, overthrow, build and plant. And they're in the infinitive form. To destroy, to build, to plant, the infinitive form. So those six key words are popping up in Jeremiah throughout this book. And O'Palma Robertson says that this often is not understood or uh, probably um, examined as well as it should be. So he points out all of these. The first one comes at his call. When Jeremiah is called as a prophet, these six words are there in his call and commission. And we see that through Jeremiah, all of this is going to come, come to pass. Jeremiah is God's mouthpiece to the people, right? And it's through the word of Jeremiah that God is going to uproot and he's going to tear down. He's going to destroy. He's going to overthrow. But he's also going to build and plant nations and kingdoms. God is going to do all those things through the word of Jeremiah. So that composes his call. And then we get to Jeremiah 11 through 12. And it's about God's covenant with Israel and the nations. And twice we see this, this reference pop up where he talks about planting Israel. And Jeremiah acknowledges that they have taken root and borne fruit like a plant. They have taken, taken root, Jeremiah 12. 
But the problem is that this is a people who honors the Lord with their lips, but he is, they're far in their hearts from him. That they do uh, honor the Lord in what they, their, their words and actions, but he remains far from their hearts, Jeremiah 12. And so the Lord, said, the Lord promises to uproot them. He will again have compassion and will bring each of them back to his own inheritance in his own country. That though that they will be uprooted, there's going to be hope that God will have compassion on them, Jeremiah 12. And there remains the, the promise for Israel and its neighbors to be built up again. You see that language that Palmer Robertson is pointing out, the built. The idea of exile and restoration being used in this language, that they will be um, once again built, they will be planted. Then he moves on to Jeremiah 18 through 19, uh, and Jeremiah visits the potter. You may be familiar with this, the story of the potter in Jeremiah. Um, he shows in the first visit, he has two visits. In the first visit, the potter decides to reshape a lump of clay that's marred in the process of molding. Um, so if you've ever gone to a pottery class, you know how difficult it is to stick your thumbs in the right place. And as, a, as it moves in a circle, and to, to form that in the right way, and if you make a mistake, you can you know, re, reshape it and kind of get it back on track. And so likewise... Uh, having determined to uproot, tear down, and destroy a nation for sin, the Lord may alter his purpose if the people repent. So there's this idea that instead of just throwing away the whole, the whole work, to rework it and to make it what it's supposed to be, that God, if the people repent, they will not be completely cast out. Um, but also, uh, the Lord intends to build and plant a nation, and, and if they do evil, the Lord will reconsider his intention for it. Um, so it, it works both ways. He intended to build and plant, but if they do evil, the Lord will reconsider whether he's going to keep them or not. In the second visit, the part is where it goes past the point of recovery. So it gets to be a point where if you've messed up that clay too much trying to, trying to work it, like I probably would, it gets to a point where there's no one, no one good enough that can make that thing back to be what it's supposed to be, make it a jar or whatever you're creating. Uh, it's gone, it's messed up too much, and it, all you can do with it is throw it away. And so this is an imagery of, of judgment on God's people. That It's a symbol of devastation of Jerusalem, that they pass the point of recovery, and it is impossible to restore them again. They must be crushed, and they must be cast out. Um, so that was Jer uh, Jeremiah's visit to the potter, and we see the language there of uprooting and, and tearing down. Uh, nation for sin. In Jeremiah 24, we have the vision of two baskets of figs. And Jeremiah here sees two baskets, one containing good figs and one containing bad figs. The good figs you can eat, the bad figs are so bad that they are inedible. Um, and he says that this is a picture of, of Israel, that the Israelites that are exiled to Babylon, Babylon are the basket of good figs. So some of the Israelites are already exiled to Babylon, they're considered the good figs. Those who remain in the land are figs too rotten to eat, and they will be banished. So the Lord declares, using that language again, he will build and not overthrow, and plant and not uproot these exiles to Babylon. Now the question here, if you're thinking about it, you would think, well, why, why are the good figs, those that were cast out, exiled? And why are the, the people that stayed in the land and were still able to worship at the temple, why are they the ones that are the bad figs, too, too bad to even eat? Why was, why was God using this imagery 
you would think it'd be the other way around. The, the exiles would be the ones who are the, the bad figs, and those who stay in the land would be the good figs. But that's not, that's not the way that this, this imagery goes. So why, uh, just a question for us to ponder. Why do you think God favors the Israelites ex- exiled to Babylon and promises not to overthrow them, uh, but he promises to banish those that are left in the land? Uh, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. That's helpful. I hadn't, th- I hadn't thought about that. Any other thoughts? Yeah. Okay, yeah. It, well, I mean, there's a, we could have a lot of conversation about this, and I, I, I better move us along because we're about out of time. Um, but that, it's, it's a difficult question. I, one of the things that Palmer Robertson points out is that it would appear that those who are least deserving, the Lord will build and plant. The idea here is that those who are least deserving are the ones that end up being built and planted. Uh, we have the Jeremiah 24, the, the promise here, I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord. They will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with all their heart. The idea of, in Jeremiah, we see of God giving the people a new heart. And that comes in Jeremiah 31, the prophecy of the new covenant. Uh, we see that language of building and planting. In the future days, the covenant Lord will plant the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the offspring of men and of animals. And as he once watched over them to uproot and to tear down, so God was watching over them to, to, to punish them, so in the coming days he'll watch over them to build and to plant. 
So the, the ideas there that have been coming even from the beginning of the book. So the fact that this planting involves both men and animals hints at a new cosmic beginning. So he's, he's not just prophesying uh, just for that time in history, but also looking forward to the future, that there's this, this hope coming. Um, Jeremiah speaks of a new covenant with a fuller manifestation of grace by the rejuvenation of the heart and restoration of the entire earth. So this isn't just about, you know, one little people and one little lamb. God says this is actually going to fill the earth. This is going to be a restoration that actually goes to the heart of man. It's going to be changed, and it's also going to fill the entire earth. Um, Jeremiah 42, the language pops up again. Uh, the remnant that survived the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem pleads with Jeremiah for guidance from the Lord. And Jer Jeremiah responds later that if you stay in the land, the Lord says, I will build you up and not tear you down. That language again. I will plant and not uproot. And then again, we have the language lastly in Jeremiah 45, where Baruch is the scribe of Jeremiah, and the Lord speaks to him and uh, says to Baruch, I will overthrow what I have built and uproot what I have planted throughout the land, kind of confirming uh, that the judgment's coming for Judah, the judgment's coming, that they will um, be uprooted throughout the land. And that was um, not the news that Baruch wanted to hear, <laughs> not the news that any, any of us would want to hear. Um, so in all of that, we see that Jeremiah embodies the idea of exile and restoration for the nations. And O. Palmer Robertson points out that language that happens and a lot of key points throughout Jeremiah, the language of uprooting and then planting his people, exile and restoration, that it has a fulfillment at that time, but more fully, the salvation is being pointed to a greater day when the Messiah actually makes this completely fill the earth, that this new covenant will be something better um, than they could imagine. Uh, any thoughts we really don't have a lot of time before we close it was a lot um i am the kind of person i like i just write everything down so it's all here you can take it home and look look at it if you're like me it takes it takes you takes me time to process stuff so I, I need to go back and like read through it and think about it um so hopefully it was a lot of pages six pages but hopefully that's something that you can use in the future and be helpful uh, so let's go ahead and pray before we move on into worship. Father, we thank you for your word to the prophets that you use them. Um, and we thank you that we have such a great hope, that we have a Messiah who has fulfilled all your requirements and who has made it possible for us to know uh, you and to have forgiveness of sins and to not fear the great judgment um, after death, but that we might have salvation in Christ, hope of a, a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. We pray that we might live in and out of that hope. In Jesus' name, amen.